some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people, and they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he, he said that those also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces, left over seven baskets full. Baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. And he, set them, and he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and, we, and went to the district of Dalmanusa. The word compassion is a beautiful word, isn't it? The word comes to the English from two Latin words, com, which means with, and passion, which means to suffer. So compassion literally means to suffer with, to enter someone's suffering, to help them bear their load of pain. To demonstrate compassion towards the hurting is a non negotiable Christian virtue. The Apostle Paul says in Galatians 6.2, bear one another's burdens. In other words, show compassion and so fulfill the law of Christ. The reason why compassion is so indispensable for the Christian is because Jesus is filled with compassion. We see this compassion today at full display in the feeding of the 4,000. Now, you may be asking our, yourself this question. Pastor Lucas, haven't you preached the sermon already? And I'll tell you that you should stop snoozing through my sermon. Now, back in chapter 6, we saw the feeding of the 5,000. And now we see the feeding of the 4,000. They're similar, but different. There's a sense in which we're going to play a bit of spot the difference today between these two stories. The stories are so similar that often liberal critics would say that they're the same story that Mark simply duplicated. I'd argue, I'd argue for many reasons that that's clearly not the case. We find, we do find, many differences between the two stories. The location, the number of people, different amounts of food, difference in dialogue. But most importantly, Jesus knew these stories were different. And he points out later on in the passage that we're going to see next week, the difference between these two stories. By the way, we are entering today another Markan sandwich where Jesus starts, or Mark starts the story, interrupts it, and then recapitulates the, uh, the story. So Jesus says in Mark 
8, 19 and 20, through 21, he's talking to his disciples and he says to them, when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, one story, how many baskets, baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, 12. Verse 20, and the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said, they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? So clearly, these are two different stories, two different occasions. So why does Mark compile two stories that are so similar back to back? Remember what the Apostle John says. If we were to write down every account of what Jesus did, all of the books on earth would not be enough. So clearly, Mark is not telling us everything we could possibly know about what Jesus did. So he's compiling stories with a purpose. So why, only two chapters apart, does Mark compile two similar stories? I think Mark is doing this because whenever we put two things that are very similar next to each other, their differences actually become magnified. Think of it as a game of spot the difference. Once you know, once you've spotted the difference between the two pictures, you cannot unsee the differences. Your eyes will be drawn towards the differences every time. Remember, Mark is a literary genius. So he's using similarities in order to highlight differences. Perhaps the greatest difference between the two stories is the location where they take place. In the feeding of the 5,000 back in chapter 6, Jesus and his disciples were traveling through Galilee, and that's Jewish territory. But the feeding of the 4,000, we still find ourselves in the re region of Decapolis. And this is Gentile territory. And this is what Mark wants us to see. Mark wants us to see the compassion of Christ. The compassion of Christ that will go to the ends of the earth. Jesus desires the nations. Why? Because there is enough compassion in Christ for anyone who will come to him for help. Friend, if you're not a Christian and you're visiting us here today, and perhaps what has kept you from coming to Christ may be a question like, have I just rejected Christ beyond redemption? I want you to know this, Jesus' compassion is infinite. If you come to him, he will not cast you out. There is no sin that repentance and faith in Christ will not cover. There is no life that can outsin the grace, mercy, and compassion 
of Christ. Friend, if you are a believer among us, but you just feel like you are a second-class Christian, perhaps in your mind, the ideal Christian speaks a certain way, looks a certain way, has a family that looks or behaves a certain way, can I just say, I think we're going to be very surprised in heaven if we find out what depth of faith really looked like in this earth. Friend, if you feel like a needy and weak Christian, I hope you see in this passage today that it is the need and the weak, it is the needy and the weak that receive compassion. Our need and our weakness drive us to Christ, and they are very often tools that the Lord uses to increase our faith. In some way, Christianity is a, is a paradox. The strongest among us are the weakest. There is no such thing as a great Christian. Only Jesus is great. And we all depend on His greatness. So let's turn to our text for today. Let's first consider Jesus' compassion. I told you last week that geographical information often help us understand the purpose of a passage. In verse 1, the words, in those days, they tell us the context of our passage for today. Well, in those days are the days that Jesus was in the region of Decapolis. Jesus has been on a tour of Gentile country. Two weeks ago, he traveled through the region of Tyre and Sidon, which is modern-day Lebanon. And there he was approached by a Syrophoenician woman, by a Canaanite woman. She asked Jesus to heal her de demon-possessed daughter, but Jesus' answer was surprising. He said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread, it's going to become relevant for our story today, and throw it to the dogs. At face value, it sounded like Jesus was insulting and rejecting that woman, but he was actually testing her faith, and the woman was faced with a choice. Take offense at Jesus and walk away, or persevere with faith and humility. She passed. Jesus test. Her answer, yes, Lord, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Jesus then, impressed with her faith, healed her daughter. And we'll get back to this woman and her crumbs at the end of our message today. Last week, we met a man who had a speech impediment and was deaf. This man was from Decapolis from this Gentile region, the same region we find ourselves in today. Jesus touched his ears and with his saliva touched his tongue and said, Ephatha, be open. And in doing that, Jesus breathed life into his body 
of decay. This week, after two encounters with individuals, Jesus meets the crowd again. 4,000 strong. In chapter 6, he fed 5,000 men. And we saw that the word there meant that he fed 5,000 men, not including women and children. Some estimate that that crowd was about 25,000 people. Now the word Mark uses here refers to people in total. So the 4,000 people are 4,000 people. They've been with Jesus for three days and have exhausted their food supplies. So Jesus gathers his disciples and displays his heart towards the crowd. Notice first, the tender heart of Jesus. In verse 2 he says, I have compassion on the crowd. In chapter 6, Mark tells us that Jesus had compassion on the 5,000. But the pronouns are changed here. Jesus takes first person. No longer is his compassion narrated. Jesus tells us, I have compassion. This is powerful because Jesus is here revealing the heart of God. God is not disconnected from our experiences. Jesus' compassion is geared towards our need. His heart responds to the affliction of the crowd in how deeply does Jesus' compassion go. The word Mark attributes to Jesus here is the word esplagnizomai. A very literal translation would be, I am moved in my inner parts. I am moved in my heart. I am moved in my stomach. I am moved in my bowels. Jesus is speaking here of this internal emotion that is exploding with him towards a needy Christ, a needy, a needy crowd. Jesus is here explaining or is depicting a compassion that creates in him a visceral response. Listen to this quote from Dane Ortland's book, Gentle and Lowly. The cumulative testimony of the four Gospels is that Jesus Christ sees the fallenness of the world all about him, his deepest impulse, his most natural instinct is, toward, is to move towards the sin and suffering and not away from it. In other words, your need is a magnet for Jesus' compassion. Jesus is drawn to you because of your need, not because of your greatness. He feels attracted to you because he feels moved in the heart towards the needy. The strong will not know the compassion of Christ. 
but the needy, the broken, the contrite, the hungry, the thirsty will. You know, in a house with a very active four-year-old and a crawling 11-month-old, there's never a quiet moment. But there's one sound that pierces straight through my heart. It is the sound of a sudden cry. Now, as a dad, you know the differences between the cry that is for attention and the cry that is out of need. When I hear that cry, the cry that's out of need from my son or from my daughter, my heart becomes geared toward them. My children's needs, they move my heart. I will drop anything that I may be doing to attend to the needy cry of my son or of my daughter. Friends, when you cry out to Jesus in need, He hears you. Psalm 22. For He has not despised or bored the affliction of the afflicted, and He has not hidden His face from Him, but has heard when He cried to Him. Now let's consider Jesus, how Jesus displays this compassion. And Jesus often displays His compassion through His people. We don't know exactly where in Decapolis this event is taking place. It seems to be at a desolate place. Jesus knows that many are far from home, so people had to travel long distances to come to Jesus. They have eaten in three days, and their journeys back home would be long and arduous. We also get a hint for the desolation of this place in verse 6. In the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus instructs the crowds to sit on the grass, but here he instructs them to sit on the ground. There's no grass, just soil, perhaps a dry, desert-like place. Whatever the case may be, Jesus again activates his disciples. He points out the need that he sees And how do the disciples respond? Look at verse 4. They say, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? Now, I wish I could just see Jesus' reaction to this question. Hello? I'm here! Has it been this long since we fed the 5,000? You, 5,000, you can't be serious. It's almost hard to believe that the disciples asked such a question. (coughs) But they did. But why? Why do the disciples seem to have such short memory? Well, friends, Sometimes, even when we're walking closely with Christ, we can forget His power. Have you ever experienced that? Have you ever experienced the provision of God in a life circumstance? And then face the same circumstance sometime later, 
and doubted? This is what's going on with the disciples. Remember Elijah, who one day calls fire down from heaven and then slaughtered 45 prophets of Baal? And then the next day was afraid to death of one single woman called Jezebel? Remember that Peter told Jesus, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And yet hours later, he was afraid of a little girl who could hear his Galilean accent and said that he was a disciple of Christ. Friends, before we think that we would have stronger faith than the disciples, we need to remember that even great men of the faith struggle to believe the power of God. But Jesus' response to his disciples is, actually, disciples is actually very kind. He does not rebuke them. He simply asks, how many loaves do you have? The disciples did not have much faith, but Jesus uses them anyway. In in um, in chapter six, we're going to in chapter nine. We're going to meet a father who comes to Jesus for help. His son is possessed by a demon that seeks to destroy him. Jesus tells him of the importance of faith, and this man comes to Jesus and says, "I believe. Help my unbelief." Do you realize this is the double statement of faith? He believes in Jesus, and he believes that Jesus can help him believe. Friends, it is encouraging for us, it is enough for us to believe that Jesus helped us believe. His faith was enough for him to see Jesus deliver his son from the oppression that he was under. Friend, Jesus won't use you because of your confidence, eloquence, appearance, or even your faith. God's anger burned against Moses for not wanting to speak to Pharaoh. And yet, God used weak, feeble, fearful Moses in mighty ways. I wonder if you think you're not able to serve God because of your weak faith. Friend, weakness is a prerequisite for Christian service. When we band our weakness together and use it with faith for the glory of God, incredible things happen. Give me a church filled with weak men and women who are able to say, help my unbelief, and we will change this city. Notice here that he asks the disciples for their bread. He asks them in verse 5, how many loaves do you have? And they respond, seven. In verse 7, Mark tells us, that the disciples also had a few small fish. This fish is different than the fish from chapter 6, from the feeding of the 5,000. These are like sardines, small fish. 
Also, in the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus asked the disciples to find food among the crowd. For here he asks them for their food. Jesus is here welcoming them to be a contributing part to this great miracle. But they don't have much, do they? Seven loaves, a few fish, a crowd of 4,000. But Jesus uses them anyway. The disciples didn't have many resources, but Jesus uses them anyway. Friends, Jesus owns everything. He doesn't even need the bread and the fish of the disciples. When Satan is tempting Jesus, he rightly points out that Jesus could turn stones into bread. He could have done that. Jesus is God. He created the universe ex nihilo out of nothing. He could have spoken and a banquet would have been presented before his people in this desolate place. Psalm 24, verse 1, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Psalm 50, verses 10 through 12, For every beast of the field is mine, the cattle of a thousand hills on a thousand hills. I know, I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. These are the words of Christ. God does not depend on our resources to bring about the ministry that he has planned for us. When the people of Israel had no food, God rained down food from heaven. When they were thirsty, he provided water from a rock. When the prophet Elijah was hungry, God sent ravens with bread and meat for them, for him. God does not need us or our resources to accomplish his purposes but he finds delight in equipping us to join him in his ordering of creation. God could have created a garden that cared for itself in Eden. But God put Adam and Eve in the garden of Eden and told them to keep the garden even before sin entered the world. Adam and Eve had nothing when they were created. They contributed nothing to the garden. They had nothing to offer. And yet, God called them to work in His garden. We so often think that God needs our resources. So often we can compare ourselves to other churches, can't we? If we only had their building, if we only had their budget, if we only had their resources, if we only had their staff. First of all, let me say this. If another church is having success, that's a reason to rejoice. We play in the same team. We worship the same God. We have the same goal. The first time I met Jonathan Key, the pastor from First Baptist of India Atlantic, he told me, every time I drive by your church, I pray that the Lord would bring 100 FIT students here. I said, funny that you say that. I have been praying for the same thing. I was encouraged to know that a fellow pastor in town loves our church. 
He wasn't thinking 100 FIT students to my church. He was thinking, you were right there. That's your mission field. I pray for you. That's encouraging. But friends, even if we just have a simple desire to have more things so we can serve God, we often forget that we, that we have God. And that's enough. And God does not accomplish the impossible in His kingdom because we bring our resources to Him. Just think about this. If Jesus had asked the disciples to look to bring their bread and they said, we actually have none, do you think Jesus would have then said, then I guess I can't do anything. Then I guess I can't do a miracle because you don't have anything to bring to me. No, friends, I think what we see in our text today is that God accomplishes the impossible regardless of what we have to offer. Friend, if you are wealthy and generous, praise God. Central Baptist Church does not need you. If you're poor and generous, praise God. Central Baptist Church does not need you. We need God. We need God to provide for our every need. And He has. 62 years later, here we are. And have we depended on the resources of anybody? No, never. We've depended on the God who owns all things. Now listen, we want to be generous, don't we? We do. We do, but not because God needs our generosity. We want to be generous because we get to participate in God's redemptive work through our giving of our resources, of our time, of our home, of all that we have. Let us be humble and let us serve God with humility. God accomplishes the impossible regardless of what we have to offer. So we should be bold, shouldn't we? Christians, out of all people, should go all in. We should go for broke and trust the provision of the Lord. We should trust His sovereignty, His power. We should trust that He's all benevolent and He's good. So what are some ways that we can apply this to ourselves? Young men, have you ever thought about going into the ministry? Have you ever thought about pastoring, shepherding the flock of God? Have you ever thought of teaching and preaching the word? Do you feel unqualified for this call? Young men, God is the one who qualifies you. If you desire the ministry, the Bible says you desire a good thing. And let no one despise your youth. Pursue pastoral ministry. Pursue missions. If you're single, do you at times think that you're overlooked because you're not married, because you don't have children? Can I remind you of the powerful ministry of the Apostle Paul, the most influential apostle, theologian, church planter, missionary in the history of Christianity? His influence was only eclipsed by the influence of our Lord Jesus Christ himself, who was single. 
Moms, do you sometimes think that you can't serve because your life is too busy? Your children are just too demanding, too much of your time, is demanding too much of your time right now? Well, let me encourage you with this. You're right to think of your children as your first ministry. Yes, they are. And God bless you for knowing that. But can I encourage you to involve others in your busy life? Can I encourage you to involve others in all your always-on-the-go, at times, chaotic life? If a young lady is looking to you for discipleship, tell her to come over and help you fold clothes. If some of the singles are gravitating towards you, invite them over for dinner. Tell them to get there early so they can help you prepare. Moms, there are so many demands on your time. I know. But be strategic so that you can be missional. Friends, do you desire to use your home to encourage others in the Lord, but your home is just too humble? Or you may feel self-conscious about what people might think of your house? Or your home may just not be as well put together as some others? Can I encourage you to think of this kind of ministry not as entertainment, but as hospitality? Entertainment is when we try to impress others with our home. We don't need that. We don't need any of that. Hospitality is when we try to serve others with our home. Do you hear the word hospital in the word hospitality? Friends, our home should be a place where the needy and the sick come to and they feel rejuvenated, refreshed. If you haven't had other believers over at your house, can I challenge you to do that in the next couple of weeks so that the ministry of this church can be a ministry that goes beyond our walls into our homes. Friends, ministry is not about the resources we bring. Ministry is about Jesus and what Jesus will do through us even when our resources are meager and scarce. Well, uh, let's consider our last point. Jesus' compassion surpasses our needs. Notice that Jesus' miracles are always perfectly accomplished. He never gets it wrong the first time. Jesus never does anything haphazardly. The cripple does not walk away with a limp. The deaf and mute does not speak with a lisp. The bleeding discharge does not return. Legions of demons come out and not one lingers. Deuteronomy 22, for the rock, his work is perfect. For all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without inquiry, inquiry, just and upright is he. Psalm 18, verse 30, the God, this God, his way is perfect. And how is Jesus' work perfect here? The people ate and they were satisfied now 
He takes a lot of bread and sardines to satisfy 4,000 people. 4,000 hungry people. Just yesterday, I got an email from the chaplain that coordinates our outreach dinners at FIT. He told me that they're averaging 90 people a week and other churches have been running out of food. So we're scrambling to keep up with 90 hungry college students. But Jesus takes the bread, takes the fish, gives thanks, and with ease fills every stomach in the crowd with an abundance of food. Philippians 4.19, And my God will supply every need of yours according to His riches. And how rich is God? He owns everything. According to His riches in God, in glory, in Christ Jesus. So, when our needs are great, they're never greater than God's supply in Christ. You see, Jesus was able to satisfy everyone because His supplies for their needs according to His riches. And this is true of you and me as well. We are told to pray for our daily bread, aren't we? But doesn't God give us so much more than that? Doesn't God supply for us from the abundance of his riches. Mark makes the point here to tell us how much bread was left over, and I think that this is significant. He did the same in the feeding of the 5,000 men. There the disciples collected 12 baskets of bread. But the Greek word there would tell us that these were small personal baskets. The point that Jesus was making there in the feeding of the 5,000 is that every disciple would have their allotment of bread. They serve, but they won't be in need. Here they collect seven baskets. Now the word here is a different word. These are large baskets. We find the same word in the book of Acts when the Apostle Paul is being lowered from the wall in Damascus. The Apostle Paul is lowered in a basket. This is that same basket. These are baskets that could fill a grown man. Disciples collect those baskets, and that's a lot of bread for 12 people. Friends, not only does Jesus supply for our need, Jesus Provision is abundant for our every need. Jesus' compassion will ultimately exceed all of our expectations. And I think Mark is developing here a theme in his gospel that if we're not careful observers of the text, we might miss the wonderful theology of compassion that Mark is unfolding before us. You might have noticed that Mark has been mentioning bread a lot lately. And you see that in the chapters ahead, he will continue to do so. 
But why does Mark do that? Why is bread so important? What I think Mark is doing here is he is developing a thematic theology. He's developing a theology around a theme. Mark is developing here a theology of bread. Now, this may seem trivial, perhaps insignificant, but there's a deep theological reason why he is doing that. Why is bread so important for Mark? I think primarily for two reasons. Bread reminds us of our constant need for provision. But bread also reminds us of our constant need for the provider. In his interaction with the devil, in his temptation in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus says, Men shall not live by bread alone. Notice that Jesus is not saying here that men shall not live by bread. Jesus is not saying that provision is not important. He's saying men shall not live by bread alone. So when we notice that we need physical provision, that's not a bad thing. It is not wrong to pray for our daily bread. Jesus himself tells us that we should pray for our daily bread. But we shouldn't be concerned with bread alone. But we should, right, live by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, remember what I said in the beginning. Although the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000 in chapter 6 and the feeding of the 4,000 here in this chapter are very similar, the fact that Jesus is performing this miracle in Gentile territory is at the heart of why Mark is compiling this account in the Gospel. So, Let's consider, just for a minute before before we finish, the Seraphonician woman one more time. She asks Jesus to heal her daughter, and what does Jesus tell her? I I can't give you the bread of the children, bread of the children, because you're not a child, you are a dog. In other words, Jesus is saying, I can't turn my ministry from the Jews to the Gentiles. But then, how does she respond? She says, but if you just let me eat the crumbs, that would be enough. She's not asking to be filled and satisfied. She's just asking for a little bit of mercy. But what does Jesus do? Jesus grants the desire of her heart fully, completely. Does Jesus give her crumbs? Or does Jesus satisfy her with the bread of life? Notice what happens here. When Jesus goes into Gentile territory, does he give them crumbs? Does he give them the bare minimum no jesus heart is compassionate towards them he satisfies them with bread until they can eat no more they feast at the feet of jesus 
Why? Because Jesus never gives his grace in form of crumbs. It is always, it is always sufficient. The Syrophoenician woman did not receive crumbs. She received a feast from the hands of Christ. The people of the Decapolis did not receive crumbs. They received a feast from the hands of Jesus. And friend, this is what Jesus came to offer you. You do not need to approach Jesus for crumbs. Jesus, just help me with this little thing in my life. Help me with that little thing in my life. Do you feel like you're hungry for crumbs from the hand of God? Listen to what Jesus offers to you today. John 6:35 I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. This is the good news of the gospel, friends. Jesus doesn't just meet our physical needs, of which, by the way, the mere fact that we're here means that Jesus is meeting our needs. Mere fact that we're able to come here physically. But Jesus doesn't just do that. He doesn't just offer us the bread that we eat. Jesus offers us himself. He is the bread of life. And anyone who comes to feast on the bread of life is welcome. Not because we've earned his favor. Not because we're strong. But because he is good. Because he invites us. The good news of the gospel is that we don't deserve to feed on the bread of life. The good news of the gospel is that we don't deserve to come to Jesus. Our sin makes us completely unworthy of him. Our sin makes us worthy of the opposite. We should starve under the wrath of God. But Jesus, the bread of life, died in our place, taking upon himself our guilt and giving us his righteousness. And now he offers us a place at his table where we Feast on Him. And what must you offer in exchange for this place at the table of Christ? Not to eat the crumbs that fall under the table, but to sit with Him forevermore? Nothing. You can offer Him nothing. There is nothing that you bring to Christ that will move his heart towards you. You can only believe. And friends, at this table, at the table of Jesus, there is no place for those that come because of their resources, because of their background, because of their religious history at this table only those who believe that Jesus died to pay for their sins are welcome so will you today by faith receive the bread of life
Would you pray with me? Father, give us Christ or we die. It is that simple. We'll find no sustenance for our souls if we cannot feast on Christ, the bread of life. May we all know him today. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.